Thanks for downloading this HistoryHope.ie podcast. In this episode, a recording of a paper given at the UCD Centre for War Studies. The paper, The Irish Revolutionary Generation, was given by Roy Foster, Carroll Professor of Irish History at the University of Oxford. Professor Foster was introduced by the director of the UCD Centre for War Studies, Professor Robert Gavart. Welcome, everyone. Uh, delighted to uh, see so many uh, people here today, despite the fact that it is uh, the term break. Uh, clearly, uh, testifies to the eminence of our speaker today. I'm delighted uh, to welcome one of Ireland's most eminent public intellectuals and historians, uh, Roy Foster, who's Carroll Professor of Irish History at Oxford University. Um, his uh, honours and prizes are too numerous to list here, but he is uh, a fellow of the British Academy and also an honorary member of the Royal Irish Academy. Um, he's the author of more than 10 books um, and, of course, particularly famous for Modern Ireland and the authorised two-volume biography of W.B. Yeats, among others. Um, today, uh, he kindly agreed to give us a, a sneak preview and this new book, which will be out later this year, which will uh, deal with the uh, Irish revolutionary generation. So welcome, Roy, and thank you for accepting our invitation. Thanks very much, Robert, and thank you all for, for coming. It's nice to be back in this room where I used to viva people for firsts in my mm-hmm. phase as an external examiner for this great institution, um, some of whom may be sitting in this room even now. Um, The subject of the seminar, Robert tells me, is war and conflict, and also, I suppose, the study of violence and revolution, and that is what I've been working on. So I'm going to try and shape what I've been working on for the last five years into a presentation that I hope will pick up some of the themes that the seminar usually looks at. I've been looking at, I suppose, radicalization among perhaps unlikely people, and trying to see the Irish Revolution, which came out of that radicalization, as an, perhaps in a, in a more non-exceptional way than it is often treated, and to see it as a question of conflict of generations, as well as a colonial conflict or a nationalist uh, rising or however. Because I think the way we're seeing revolutions now is less a simple pattern of immiseration and outbreak of the oppressed, although that's a part of it, but we're becoming interested in the radicalization of less expected groups, of more elite groups perhaps, often with an apparent stake in the system, often with parents in the establishment, organizing sometimes against large odds, sometimes in a way that's ridiculed by their contemporaries and eventually convincing themselves that acts of violence will be necessarily redemptive. And I'm trying to see the Irish Revolution in that kind of framework. I'm trying to see Irish revolutionaries of the early 20th century, like, let's say, the young people in 1780s Paris, who called themselves the party of the future, or the student revolutionaries in St. Petersburg in 1905, Um, or other young people who tried to change the world and rebelled against their parents as well as against their government. I'm also interested in what happens when the original radicals and agitators are replaced by activists with guns and what that means for innovative thought and anti-establishment feelings, another conflict of generations, if you like. And the elements and themes which I've been considering in my work on the Irish Revolution raise questions such as how, how and when does a generation conceive of itself as different, entire, and ready to claim for itself the right to extreme action? How and when does the authority of a previous generation of parents lose purchase? By what processes do such people bond and reinforce each other? and set themselves in contradistinction to their elders. My book looks particularly at such features as education, reading, agitprop activities, fringe theatre, journalism, and sexual dissidence. Also, how do conceptions of sacrificial action take hold and how far are 
religious impulses widely defined an essential part of this. And what does it mean for revolutions and revolutionaries when they realize that they've got the future wrong? And what, I'm, what I mean by that is that they've acted in anticipation of a future that turns out to be very different from the one they've envisaged, suffered for, and inflicted suffering on behalf of. And finally, how far does historical change require a dedicated body of activists who are conscious that they're living in a time of flux and that their own lives and their own impulses and their own personae are reflections of this? And what I've been trying to do is to try and recapture exactly that, the voices of, the, of people who feel like that. Their voices, not as they're recorded for later purposes after the revolutionary era, but as they're preserved in letters and diaries and reflections and exchanges at the time. And I don't want to, I could spend the next 45 minutes reading out such, or reading out material from the sort of stuff I've been querying, but I'm going to try and, and not do that. But I'd like to illustrate it with a reflection that's both personal and contemporary. It's from the unpublished diary of a young Corkman in 1905. And you find him writing in June 1905 in his diary, I often wonder whether there's been an actual objective change of affairs or of general ideas in Ireland during the past decade that make things seem different to me now from what they did three, four, or five years ago. Or is it a change of ideas within myself, the inevitable change from boyhood to youth, from youth to manhood? I presume both are working. I am changing, and things around me change. And when I found that reflection in Liam de Rochester's diary in 1905, I felt that authentic prickle on the back of my neck because it was an exact contemporary reflection of the, the, the movements, the, the tremors that I was trying to trace in other ways. Along with many of his generation, de Rochester senses he's living at a time of transformation that will take place both personally and nationally. He has already changed his name. He's born William Roach. He changes his name, as so many of these people do. And to change your name, I think, is not just an indication that you're a gay Lagore. It's an enormous thing to do to change your name. And I think the psychological inferences of it um, should be borne in mind. He is, of course, a gay Lagore as well. He's learning. He's later teaching Irish. He's constantly bemoaning that he can never quite get it right. Um, he's conscious of a sense of apartness, and perhaps, I think, a sense of destiny. And I'll come back to that sense of destiny in others as well later. Above all, what I'm trying to do in looking at people like de Rochester is, is look at how revolutionaries are made, often from unlikely material or in unlikely locations, and how they become a revolutionary generation and conceive of themselves as, as that. And the conception of the whole idea of a, a, of, a, of a generation is, as many of you will, I'm sure, know, a fertile but a troublesome one. There's a very large and complex literature on the subject now that began really back in the 20s with the work of Osef Tege Gasset and Karl Mannheim, who I think were very conscious that the people, that after the First World War, there was a generation who conceived of themselves as what Robert Vaughan in a much later book would call the generation of 1914. And the generations could be conceived of not as just people born at the same time, but as people who self-conceived themselves, who self-bonded themselves um, by cultural mentality and social circumstance. And generationism now seems to be challenging older criteria um, uh, organizing principles of analysis. Um, we now conceive of age groups as carriers of intellectual and organizational alternatives, working on a kind of, under a kind of constellation, if that doesn't sound too Yeatsian. And as I say, a lot of this thought begins in the, in the analysts of the 1920s and 30s looking back at the First World War, though it's applied to other key moments of history as well. Roberto Balzani has located a risorgimento generation in Italy. Um, and I suppose I'm trying to discern a generation of 1916. Ireland, by the way, is a country that's never mentioned in Robert Wallace's book, rather, I think, surprisingly. Um, and there are ways in which I think these larger European frameworks can be applied to Ireland. Generations 
and this again is, I think, relevant to Irish historiography, are usually realized in retrospect. This is the sense in which, as somebody said, they're not born. A generation isn't born, it's made. Um, S.N. Eisenstadt, who's written about this, has remarked that a generation has to separate itself and embark on an act of repudiation, searching in the realm of political identity beyond that supplied by the family. And I think it's very true that a lot of the Irish Revolution generation are engaged in a war upon their parents' values as well as upon the um, fact of British government. And a generation is made, as I've said, retrospectively, in their memories and in the control of the, and this is very relevant to Ireland, in the control of the larger area of official memory and social memory. That's central to the construction of triumphalist nationalism, as the work of Anne Dolan and others have shown. And many of the sources of the Irish Revolution, as of any revolution, reflect a very self-conscious process of memorialization on the part of the revolutionary generation, happening through official channels such as the Bureau of Military History, which, again, many of you will know a great deal about, a government agency which starts in the 1940s collecting the memories of those active in the revolution. It's a huge, fascinating, but not unproblematic source, as some people in this very room have pointed out. Um, these memories, in inverted commas, present a version of the fin de siècle which could act as a rationalization for the violence that they embarked on in 1916, and therefore what you get about the pre-revolution in the Bureau of Military History memories is essentially retrospective and rationalized. It's possible that the military pensions application records, which Dermot and others know much more about than I do because they weren't released when I was working on this, similarly form a rich record of autobiographical but retrospective exegesis. And then there's individual enterprises of memory embarked on by people like Richard Mulcahy and Ernie O'Malley, both of whose memories are archived around the corner from here. The impulses behind their determination to recapture what happened and to go around interviewing people, collecting material, archiving it, have, of course, a lot to do with the politics of the Civil War, proving that their side was the right one and that their actions were consistent with the principles of the revolution. The recorders are turning themselves into history. But there are other impulses too, and you get the sense again of this consciousness of a generation when they meet their old comrades and ask themselves, did we do this? How did that happen? And also, how have we ended up here? But what they're usually collecting, and this is true of much of the marvelous stuff in UCD archives, is much more to do with the experience of actual activity in the revolution, what Ernie O'Malley called raids and rallies, rather than what I've been interested in, which is the networks, the preconditions, and the processes of what can awkwardly be called the pre-revolution, the ways whereby people, and as I've said, often unlikely people, became radicalized. And that's what I've been trying to explore along with some of the other themes and issues. And I want in the process to look at the individual lives of the revolutionaries, several of whom, like Liam de Rochester, were conscious, even if obscurely at the time, that their lives were reflecting a larger reality. And there's a very rich hall of letters, of diaries, and of other contemporary reflections which aren't misted by hindsight, like the source collections I mentioned earlier. And I believe in tracking the specific, the concrete, through personal and individual experience can show an, an interesting light on how a revolution happens. It can clarify through processes of paradox and nuance. And it can demote the centrality of ideological dynamics and ostensibly political impulses and find more personal, more psychological, more, if you like, underground um, impulses leading towards the repudiations and indeed leading towards the terror, the civil war and the post-revolutionary fallout afterwards, which are in some ways parallel to and 
cognate to, though, on a very different scale to the kind of things happening in Europe, Eastern and Central Europe particularly, at the same time, which our convener has written brilliantly about. Biography is important too, and the life stories of the people involved are as important as their theories and ideas. <coughs> a lot of recent work on the Russian revolutionary generation, particularly, I think, a very brilliant book on the student revolutionaries called Heralds of Revolution by Susan Morrissey. A lot of this bears this out. And these, of course, were exact contemporaries of the Irish revolutionaries. And as in Russia, in Ireland, a sense of blocked domestic revolutionary potential was released by international war. And the outbreak of hostilities also constituted for a minority of Irish revolutionary purists an opportunity they'd been anticipating for a long time. Lenin, as we well know, noted carefully what happened in Easter week 1916. But there's also impulses and vectors and conflicts and antagonisms going on between different sections of the Irish people during this period and during the revolution itself, which again has been, was, used to be rather demoted from the public record. The old collaborationist home rule idea um, was at least as much of an enemy to the revolutionary generation as the, the, the fact of British government. One astute observer noted when the Irish Revolution happened that the old Irish habits, as he put it, of ancestor worship were being challenged through the revolt of the new generation. And he pointed out that the idea of a generation revolting against its parents was very commonplace in Britain and indeed elsewhere in Europe, but in Ireland it hadn't been up to this. It was now having, he said, as great a revolutionary impact as that of Bolshevism. And you can find that same reflection in the, in, the, in the ideas of the actual actors. Pierce O'Hegarty singles out Tom Clark as the only member of his generation who hadn't let them down. He says he, he, he's the exception, the one shining example. O'Hegarty's writings and his revolutionary propaganda produced as a British civil servant with lots of time on his hands, as he himself admitted, are, I think, very indicative and very interesting about this kind of mentality. And O'Hegarty is one of those people who despise the rhetoric of his parents' generation and of Redmond and the home rulers. And don't agree that, as Redmond put it in a speech in 1915, we are a free people. We have emancipated the farmer. We've housed the agricultural labor. We've won religious liberty. We've won free education. That's not what the revolutionary generation believed. If you look at Terence McSweeney's diaries, he's writing in 1902 that I'm proud to be an extremist. And he carefully defines what he is against what he calls the sullied nationality of compromise. And these ideas are pulsing through his writings, along with the idea of sacrifice, 20 years before he will die on hunger strike. He's, Maxine is also very devout and very clericalized. But his close friend, O'Hegarty, is emphatically anti-clerical, fulminating in his letters and personal writings against the priests and their alien nature. And he says, I and all my Irish friends here, this is when he's working at the British Post Office, are all anti-clerical to a greater or lesser degree. Contemporaries from Protestant backgrounds, contemporary nationalists from Protestant backgrounds, such as Bulmer Hobson, Rosamond Jacob, Roger Casement, were more predictably equal anti equally anti-clerical and saw the church as a barrier to political advance. Casement writes to Bulmer Hobson that only Irish Protestants can really be revolutionaries because they're not afraid of the bogies of the priests. And this is the Casement, of course, who will convert to Catholicism on his deathbed. But again, it's interesting to go back to the <coughs> contemporary angle. He says, actually, that what the Irish need is the, 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 the Kaiser to send over some Germans to teach them a good Protestant lesson. Um, this is Casement back in 1913. Um, and I think that depth of anti-clericalism helps explain the particular hatred of the ancient order of Hibernians and a profound belief that one of the reasons why the IPP is damned beyond redemption is because it's so much in bed with that kind of unreconstructed uh, Catholic confessional politics. 
The revolutionary generation much more attuned to the idea that Yeats invoked in 1901, where he writes in Arthur Griffith's United Irishman, that there is an undercurrent of initiates bent on overthrowing decadent modern civilization, working among the multitude as if upon some secret errand. And the more one reads the accounts, the letters, the diaries, the reflections of this generation, the more you get the sense of that intimate but complex network of situations, especially in Dublin, which of course is defined by several political subcultures from the small shops and restaurants around Sackville, now O'Connell Street, selling radical newspapers, affording meeting places in close proximity to the offices where Inya Nihan and Heron and the Dungannon clubs and um, the revolutionaries who meet in Jenny Wise Powers Irish Farm and Produce Shop on Henry Street or in one of the several vegetarian restaurants where such people like to meet as well. It's a kind of world that's now disappeared and that isn't often part of the general memory of the revolution, but it's what's percolating away in the pre-revolution. Michael Hayes's unpublished autobiography, again archived around the corner, recalls the networks of like-minded nationalist families living around Clambrassel Street, where he grew up, and the Fenian groups meeting in upstairs rooms above pubs, again off the South Circular Road. But we'll also find certain respectable streets where middle-class radicals clustered, like Belgrave Road, and the cultural and artistic radicals in Harcourt Terrace, or Renola Road with Mary-Kate Ryan's famous nationalist salon, where young Sinn Féiners congregated to meet her and her pretty sisters. In his, in his unpublished memoir, Kevin O'Shiel discerned five different Dublins around 1910, besides the student Dublin, which he knew at Trinity. And it's a wonderful portrait of the way that you have this interlocking but contrasting uh, circles of different kinds of radicals. There were probably many more Dublins, but they all intersected in a smaller space and overlapped perhaps more than O'Shiel might have recognized. But radical nationalists sustained themselves in a self-referencing world which conceived of itself in opposition to the establishment Dublins and which pursued its own existence. And there are similar circles on a much smaller scale in Waterford, as Rosamund Jacobs' diary wonderfully outlines, and indeed in Cork. Of course, the city isn't where the conventional revolution was remembered. It's those Sean Keating paintings of peasants with rifles. And the country is where the revolutionaries, the countryside is where the revolutionaries search for purity and an uncorrupt world where resistance to British modes was held to have been preserved through the generations. And the letters and diaries recording bicycle rides or summer school picnics to places of hallowed veneration are very, very vivid indeed. You'll find these in all the recollections, no, not the recollections, the contemporary reflections of the revolutionaries. Gaelic College in the summer could provide all sorts of opportunities for young men and women to talk about making a new world and opportunities for making out as well, um, which is a different subject. Um, <laughs> And here again, I think the sector of middle-class revolutionaries are much more to do with, are much more similar to their Russian contemporaries than we sometimes think. They feel a sense of deep differentiation from their parents' generation. They're affected by currents of religious purism, which have been diverted into other channels. And both these revolutionary generations will move from an era of artistic, social, and sexual experimentation into an era of repressive conservatism. Revolutionaries like Michael Collins preferred to emphasize that it was the racial spirit of the Irish that made their revolution, as he put it, unique in history. He said, we weren't interested in um, mere revolutionary and political impulses. We wanted something finer, deeper, and more worthy to succeed, the impulse to a nobler life, not of the meaningless, abstract, non-human kind looked for by socialist revolutionaries, but a human consciousness of Gaelicism, and that this is why they succeeded. But of course, this raises several questions. The first is that they didn't succeed 
because with the partial success of the Anglo-Irish Treaty, the movement broke violently apart. The second difficulty is, again, if you read in the diaries, letters, and reflections of the kind of people I've been following, you get a different slate of preoccupations to that purist, non-social, non-socialist, um, Galicist idealism. You also get that sense of personal destiny, and the word there is personal. The diaries of Pierce Beasley, Terence McSweeney, Liam de Roche, the, the copious correspondence of Roger Casement are very similar in tone. They're hectic. They're self-referencing. They're obsessive about making an impact. They uh, invoke Byronic heroes, Werther and Hamlet, as well as Dark Rosaline. They declare an ambition to live and die greatly. They're seeking self-realization. Beasley, who grows up in a comfortable middle-class Irish community in Liverpool, where his father edits a Catholic newspaper, has a section of draft memoirs written when he's 22 called My Boyhood Early Deeds. In 1904, a year later, after suffering reverses in the bootle branch of the Gaelic League, he tells his diary, I will assert myself, I will make my presence felt. Life is full of fields for me. I'm a man with such education, wide knowledge. I have no value or esteem, any fool or churl or clodhopper. I love this language. In London, is able to look down on me. Shall I be despised? Shall I live a poor, weak, puny life? The answer I will get out of this is, you'll go to Ireland, or as he puts it, back to Ireland, which is not, in fact, accurate. I shall wake up the Gael, appeal to him, trust in him. And he does this. He goes off, he becomes a Gaelic League organiser, he becomes known to the police, he takes part in the 1918, uh, 1916 Rising. From 1918, he's on the run, and he writes one of the most blinkered accounts of the War of Independence, focusing on Michael Collins and his cult. Terence McSweeney, whose diaries I don't have time to quote, is even more grandiloquent about his sense of destiny and fate. Even Liam de Roche, though, who's often more realistic, is, his diary is full of um, <coughs> reflections like, where is this ego within a man? I pity myself at times, flatter myself at times. I have moods heroic, moods sublime, moods dismal, and moods blank. But Ireland, he says, will redeem him. And the build-up of this kind of mentality builds up, I think, also a worldview which inevitably validates violence. I think it's much more present and much more important in the volunteering movement of 1913 than it's generally held to be. The underlying impetus was much more markedly towards violent revolutionary action than simply defending home rule. And other personal documents indicate a whole slate of ideological preoccupations which extend very much beyond the kind of purist Gaelicism which Michael Collins invoked. Secularism, socialism, feminism, suffragism, vegetarianism, anti-vivisectionism pulse through the bohemian circles of Dublin and even Cork and even Waterford my hometown, in the decade before 1916. They sometimes coexist with sacrificial ultra-Catholicism, but sometimes they're in very marked contradistinction to it. What comes through the profiles of this revolutionary generation is a sense of disentitlement, frustration, provincialism, self-dramatization, as well as the pervasive influence, as has often been remarked, of very distinctively Catholic education, and the Christian Brothers' part in this has often been remarked on. Terence McSweeney is just one very obvious example of this. But inside the church, too, um, as inside the family, the turn of the century saw a conflict between generations with the younger priests embracing nationalism to the discomfiture of their elders. And you get these fault lines running <coughs> through which erupt at, at critical moments. But there were, as I've gone into at some length, in my book, there were also much less predictable routes to radicalization in terms of education. And actually, I think to concentrate on the Christian Brothers is um, to miss the uh, input and the mindset of students, of women, of intellectuals, of journalists, of emigres, of other experimental schools besides St. Andrews, because there were such. The Biographies of the revolutionaries suggest the need to accommodate such class and educational profiles. 
If you were a revolutionary and you survived, you tended always to talk down your middle class or privileged background. Just as, if we take a Russian example again, Robert Service's biography of Trotsky shows him doing. It's, it's particularly true, perhaps, for women. Reading the papers of radical women like Maura Comerford or Alice Milligan or Mabel Fitzgerald, the sense of a stultifying family background that they want to get out of is overpowering. Alice Milligan, who edited radical journals and influenced several leaders of the revolution, notably McSweeney and de Rochester, referred to herself, described herself as an internal prisoner of my own family. Maura Comerford, journalist and indefatigable Republican hunger striker, had moved very far away from a Catholic gentry childhood of ponies and tennis parties. Mabel Fitzgerald, a northern Protestant in full flight from her background who played an active part in the revolution, privately reflected, I base all my friendships in nationalism. Other things are as important, but not nearly as much so. And Rosamond Jacob from Waterford is even more striking. She's the child of free-thinking home ruler parents, but her copious diaries record her frustration with bourgeois provincial life, a powerful sense of thwarted sexuality, and her determination to break into another world. In classic back-to-the-people mode, she records her attempts to learn Irish, to encounter like-minded people in Waterford, and to make the contacts which will bring her into the glamorous circles of Countess Markovitch and Maud Gon in Dublin. Sex is important to her, and she discusses sexual liberation and relations between the sexes with radical friends like Ned Stevens, who gives her Freud to read. Sex is important to this generation. These are young people of the same generation, let's say, as the Edward Carpenter generation in, in Edwardian Britain. Um, Rosamond Jacob discusses same-sex relationships in her diaries, as well as her own desires. Beasley moves from passionate crushes on male friends to a series of um, unsuccessful, mostly, pursuits, though he does not manage to seduce a priest's sister at a Gaelic League summer school, which is quite something. Um, Liam de Rochester struggles against sexual temptation in the streets of Cork and wonders whether it's logical to see marriage as a holy sacrament and whether men and women shouldn't really live together before they get married. Mabel Fitzgerald becomes pregnant, unmarried, and elopes by climbing out of the window of her parents' respectable house off the Malone Road and running away to France with Desmond, whom she marries. Um, the casement diaries, which aren't part of this paper, should also, I think, be seen in this context as another example of a profoundly sexualized lifestyle, which goes, I think, with dissident politics in his case as well, and arises as well from a dysfunctional middle-class background. Um, Angus Mitchell might not agree, but he's alas not here. Um, along with these kind of radicalisms and unpredictabilities goes, I think, a very strong feeling of secularism and anti-clericalism. As I've said, you logically find it among some Protestant revolutionaries, but you will also find it in, for instance, Panashee Skeffington and the conversations she has with Rosamund Jacob and indeed her correspondence, which is marvelous, is, is very indi indicative of this, as Margaret Ward's biography has shown. Rosamond felt and said that it was incomprehensible how any sane person of any intelligence could be a Catholic. And then she was always rather surprised when she said things like this to her revolutionary friends and they didn't agree. She had a notably unsuccessful visit to Terence McSweeney and his sisters in Cork. And I suspect that this was one of the reasons. Um, because Terence's devotion was exceptional even for the times. He seeks advice about the propriety of reading Tolstoy because of the novelist, religious unconventionality. He constantly records in his diary his anxious hopes and speculations as to which of his friends might have a religious vocation. And he avoids mixed company except for patriotic purposes, inveighing against beastly sensual passion. Yet, he also believes in the transformative power of radical theater. He worships Ibsen, for instance, which comes as something of a surprise. And drama, again, I don't have time in this brief 
exposition to talk about it, but drama and radical <coughs> agitprop drama is a vital way, again, that the revolutionary generation assert and realize and play out their particular um, senses of difference. Terence, of course, will eventually become celebrated as a nationalist martyr dying on hunger strike in 1920. His sisters remained irreconcilable Republicans all their lives, while his widow Muriel, a daughter of the hugely wealthy brewing and distilling Murphy dynasty, who grew up in a vast Georgian mansion in Tivoli, um, followed a more radical course yet. After the revolution, she moved to Germany and then to France and embraced communism with all the fervency with which she had once espoused Republican nationalism. Before this, though, she gives a very interesting testimony in 1920 to an American commission on conditions in Ireland, where she says, my parents are not like myself. I think I am rather characteristic of a certain section in Ireland. The younger people in Ireland have been thinking in a way that some of the older ones have not. They were well off and comfortable, underestimate of the Murphy family, um, and thought only of themselves. This is dying out now. The younger members, even of such families, are Republican. I am only characteristic of a great many who were brought up, shut up at home. Again, you have this sense of the internal imprisonment. Um, getting away from home is very important, and many of the revolutionary generation became radicalized when living and working in England. Mary McSweeney, P.S.O. Hegarty, Michael Collins, Mabel Fitzgerald. And yet what links them is a highly uh, developed anglophobia, which could lead to oddly convoluted arguments. Muriel McSweeney, for instance, blamed the treaty split not on the pro-treaty people, whom she's predictably against, but on the English. She wrote from Wiesbaden, Germany, to Richard Mulcahy, I don't feel anything against anybody but England for what's happened. The treaty is the greatest infamy they've ever perpetrated on us, and I will always oppose it. I feel nothing against any Irishman. My whole venom is directed against the English people. I shall spend my time, not as up to this, working for the complete independence of Ireland's republic, but also working for the destruction and downfall of every English person I come across. The English people are, to me now, a plague of moral lepers. Um, <laughs> Muriel, like many old revolutionaries, ends up living in London. <laughs> um, but this energizing power of Anglophobia affects even Rosamond Jacob from her Quaker liberal background, lots of English relations. When she visits England, she writes contemptuously of the faces of the people in the street and how iniquitous they are. She hates Jim Larkin because he says, although she's socialist, because he, he says that the objective interests of the two working classes, the two countries, are the same. This shows a revolting, unwholesome Englishness. Dermot Coffey, who isn't a revolutionary but is a nationalist, tells his revolutionary girlfriend, Cheska Trench, the point of independence is to be able to hate the English comfortably from a position where they can't just look damn superior and smile. <laughs> Mabel Fitzgerald, this clever northern girl in full flight from her union's family, works briefly as uh, secretary to George Bernard Shaw and obviously caught his fancy. And then she goes back to live in Ireland after she's her runaway marriage. She lives near Ventry, County Kerry. And she writes to Shaw that she's bringing up her son with the sound traditional hatred of England at all her ways. You should just hear him say, Sassanac. The concentrated hate in his voice is worthy of Drury Lane. <laughs> Shaw smartly replies, my dear Mabel, as an Ulster woman, you must be aware that if you bring your son up to hate anybody except a papist, you will go to hell. You must be a wicked devil to load that child's innocent soul with a burden of old hatreds and rancors that Ireland is sick of. You make that boy a good international socialist, a good Catholic, in fact, in the true sense, and make him understand the English are far more oppressed by any folk he has ever seen than any folk he's ever seen in Ireland, and by the same forces that have oppressed Ireland in the past. Um, he also tells Mabel that she's a born orange woman who is also a bit of a spoiled beauty. It's a fantastic correspondent. Um, and that she's an educated woman trying to be a peasant. <laughs> and there is something very neurotic about the life that Mabel and Desmond, and indeed the O'Rahillys, and there's a whole bunch of them down around Ventry, trying to, um, trying to get the locals to act in Irish plays with very little success. Um, but the... <laughs> Going to the country, as I said before, the Irish summer schools, Clochanili, Ballingiri, particularly perhaps, Ring, are incredibly important as vectors of these kind of feelings. And they transform the life of young people who, like Mabel, had grown up in the city 
suburbs. Shaw also warned Mabel, by the way, that her son would inevitably grow up to throw all this back in her face, which didn't quite happen, I suppose. Um, but it brings in the generation theme again. One could go on, but I don't want to go on very much longer. I want to move to some more general reflections. Constance Markovich and many of the women, particularly who went to art school, I think, like the Gifford sisters, seem to have been distinctly radicalized there. Education, which is quite a large part of my study, as I say, does not stop with the madrasa-like institution of St. Enda's. There are all sorts of educational vectors which you can trace between this generation as well. There are also structures of intermarriage, drawing networks of friends, sisters, cousins even closer. If you follow the networks around the legendary Ryan sisters, taking in Sean T. O'Kelly, Richard Mulcahy, Dennis McCullough, Liam O'Brien, Sean McDermott, it's a, it's a cenacle, it's an absolute uh, gang, it's a clique, and it's conducive to that self-referencing, hectic world, which of course is the reason why the treaty split is so particularly awful for such people, and of course splits that particular group wide apart. Linkages also take in unexpectedly grand families, like the Plunkets living in Grandest Fitzwilliam Square with servants sleeping in their attics and working in their basements, French governesses, holidays abroad, motor cars. Um, and yet, the two Plunkett children, Geraldine and, and Joseph Mary, set up home in Marlborough Road in one of the 60-odd houses that their mother owned around Dublin, and they turned into a revolutionary cell. They stockpile weapons and ammunition, and they produce radical newspapers from it. She also, of course, owns a farm on the edge of Dublin, Kimmage, which the legendary Larkfield, which becomes a sort of commune of a combination of a radical commune and an armed camp. Yet Geraldine Plunkett records in an unpublished memoir that the condition of Ireland in her youth was actual and literal slavery, not a poetic fiction, but an actual fact. Now, when you look at the Plunkett lifestyle, this is not true, but there are other forms of compensation mechanisms. Um, I think, at work here. She's also a very interesting reflection of what happens when you go to university. She says when she got into UCD, she got away from the shabby, genteel, professional people that she despised. And I met young men and women up from the country. Their manners and accents were strange, but they were alive. They were the coming generation, that word again. And though the National University didn't produce the studentiest vogue culture of St. Petersburg, um, and radicals there weren't treated as brutally as they were at St. Petersburg. It is, it is a student culture of radicalism. And it's interesting to find how many people like Sean McDermott, like Bulmer Hobson, like Arthur Griffith, who have no connection with the university, are forever out there. They're, they're forever circulating journals on the campus. They're forever addressing meetings. They're, they're, they're radicalizing people there. Um, medical school as well. I could have talked much more about people like Pat McCartan, um, where, again, these circles and cells develop. Um, what happened in Ireland during these years isn't very often instanced in general revolutionary theory, perhaps because it took place on a small scale. And though largely successful in displacing the established order, it replaced that order with a socially and politically conservative ethos. But that's part of a general pattern. Revolutionaries having symbolically killed their fathers become founding fathers themselves. And the conclusion of a recent book about generations and political culture, which never mentions Ireland, seems, if you're as, I suppose, solipsistic as I am, to be about Ireland. It says, founding fathers, itself a generational concept, play a critical role in constructing a generational consciousness that seeks to impose cultural unity on disparate groups and constructs a national consciousness that will be exclusionary towards latecomers and women. That statement, very relevant to Ireland, is, I suppose, another way of saying what Kevin O'Higgins famously said, we were the most conservative revolutionaries who ever put through a successful revolution. And at the end of my study, I look at the way that men like O'Higgins and Cosgrave came to power and how their influence superseded those slightly older radicals. And the way that, for instance, Pat McCartan, Bulmer Hobson, Rosamond Jacob, Hanashi Skeffington, and many others became rapidly disillusioned by the new state. Their revolutionary generation had been replaced 
displaced first by the rural gunmen who made the revolution and who owed much more to Fenian separatism and faith and fatherland devoutness than to Edwardian agendas of radicalism. <coughs> then they were replaced in turn by the government of the post-revolutionary dispensation with the tough men of Cumann Miguel. But what had their revolution been about in terms of objective interests? As John Redmond tactlessly reminded them all in 1915, um, the struggle over the land had been won. And it could be argued that the former British government was neither unduly oppressive nor unrepresentative. And the prospect of Britain granting self-government in some form to some part of Ireland was coming. But in Ireland, I think, attention should be paid to the radical potential of the middle strata of society who didn't want this to happen in that way. And to the portfolio of radical causes taken up by especially middle class Irish women in the 1890s and afterwards, which I've mentioned, secularism, vegetarianism, and all the rest, written out of Irish history in the period of post-revolutionary stabilization. There are links between gender, social frustration, and revolutionary entitlement, which are very significant. One longs for something like the questionnaire that was actually circulated among the St. Petersburg students in 1907 about sexual behavior and attitudes, but we're never going to quite get that detail about what made that the Irish radical generation tick. By 1919, Rosamund Jacob was enthusiastically reading Freud on dreams and sex and attending lectures which linked sexual repression and revolutionary violence, um, and which also showed her, or she believed that the, while the Irish had an obsession with sex, which made them violent. The English had an obsession with gastrointestinal problems, which made them much worse. <laughs> the, the, um, those old anaphobic uh, <clears throat> impulses remain. In conclusion, I know I'm five minutes over 45, but we started late. Um, dreams matter, and in, not always in the ways perhaps suggested by Freud. We lived in dreams always, wrote the old revolutionary Dennis McCullough to his comrade-in-arms, General Mulcahy, many years later. But we never enjoyed them. I dreamed of an Ireland that never existed and never could exist. I dreamt of the people of Ireland as a heroic people, a Gaelic people. I dreamt of Ireland as different from what I see now, not that I was wrong in this. Others of the Irish revolutionary generation, unlike the Russians, enjoyed the old age luxury of sharing their disillusionment with each other. Liam de Rochester, with whom I began, set to editing his youthful diaries in 1943, and was struck by how puritanical he had been when a young revolutionary in Cork. I have grown tolerant, he writes in a margin. The inconsistencies of men no longer trouble me. They only stimulate a sense of humor. That's in 1943. A year later, Mabel Fitzgerald wrote once again to her old employer and admirer, George Bernard Shaw, to tell him that she had changed her own views greatly since youth. About adult suffrage, for instance, I find the masses always wrong. They seem to stand for the worst in man, certainly not for integrity, which I put first as the essential virtue in private and public life. I'm convinced education is necessary to the forming of views that are worthwhile at all, and I don't believe the majority of people can take education. If poverty and dirt and disease could be abolished, and I hope they may be, the multitude would just want more dog racing, more drink, more pictures, more tabloid news from the cheap press, and so on and on. Adult suffrage seems to have led only to the supremacy of people without standards and values and of the half-baked education league. Her husband Desmond had by then retired to pursue his studies of Thomas theology. I wonder if Shaw, receiving this letter, remembered his teasing Mabel 30 years before with being an educated woman trying to be a peasant. And I think the Irish Revolution bristles with these interesting anomalies and developments. A culture of radical nationalism flourished in sort of laboratory conditions, especially from 1912, the process of dynamic destabilization. But at the same time, I'd like to suggest that the policies of the British government between 1890 and 1912, although they provoked this dynamic destabilization, did so by a law of unintended consequences, not because they were oppressive, but because they were the reverse. The revolution took a very conservative and not expropriating course, because the iniquities of the land system, for instance, had already been righted. And one sharp-eyed revolutionary pointed out afterwards, 
What a lucky thing it was, as he put it, that the two revolutions in land and in politics had happened over 50 years in sequence and not at the same time, because then he said things really would have become destabilized and he wouldn't have wanted that. But what the revolution generation objected to was not oppression as we would recognize it, and indeed as the canon of Irish history presented it. It was the fact that the British government seemed to be imposing on Ireland a grubby, materialist, collaborationist, anglicized identity. Everything that Mabel Fitzgerald is complaining about in 1944, in fact. Sacrifice through a concealing cloud over this reality, and so did religion. But the idea that the revolution should enshrine the Catholic Church as a part ruler of Ireland was very far from what O'Hegarty, Jacob, Sheehy, Skeffingtons, and many others wanted. The treatment of the revolution has largely remained determinist and abstract. Individual biographies tend to extraordinary depths or heights of hagiography, and I'm afraid that's true of recent series which is, is coming out of lives of the revolutionary leaders. The patterns behind the revolutionary and the, revo the revolution and the revolutionary split raise all sorts of questions, which I think can only be illuminated by addressing and exploring the unexpected lives of this extraordinary generation from a wealth of sources that are there. We can decode these networks of influence, operating through education, through mentoring, through reading, through family, through agitprop theatre, through journalistic co-ops, and through love. The mature revolution was far more monocultural, far more ethnically defined, and certainly far more religious than the pre-revolution. A.E. George Russell wrote afterwards that the golden age of the revolution was from 1903 to 1913, when real change was happening in hearts and minds of the Edwardian radicals. And I'm rather of the same opinion. And I would like to remember the psychological factors that made the Irish regard any government by Britain as an alien tyranny, but also as a tyranny in which their parents had colluded. My parents, as Muriel said, are not like myself. These people wanted to change their own lives too, like Basarov in Tregenum's Fathers and Sons, which keeps coming to mind. This could only be, this can only, I think, be recaptured by hearing their contemporary voices. One last quotation. Looking back from the vantage of the 1920s, Patrick McCartan, one of the most interesting, I think, of his generation, remembered how becoming a revolutionary had changed his life and how he realized it on a visit home to Carrickmore, County Tyrone. He wrote to a friend in 1926, I was quite happy in the mountains of Tyrone, and I would probably have married some publican's daughter who'd been a few years in a good convent and could scream the songs of Araby or some such atrocity at a piano. But, he said, his activities as a revolutionary in Dublin, America, and Russia rescued me from the life of a flourishing vegetable. I did not realize it until after my return in 1921. The houses and streets in the local town looked very cold and deserted on Christmas Eve, those in the village looked worse. My mind was made up. It was Dublin or New York. The work I've been doing makes the case that the revolutionary generation were seeking a liberation that was personal as well as political, though how many of them found it is an open question. Thank you. <laughs>